Hi, I'm Dr. Akiva Down. And I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And welcome to Interesting Questions. In this podcast, we'll be addressing issues that are philosophical, religious, and psychological in nature, and exploring some of the deeper questions as we go into Season 2. We will be focusing on that which is considered to be controversial, and there may not be a right or wrong answer. So we are hoping that our discussions will yield more questions for your Shabbos table. Hello, and welcome to Interesting Questions. We are up to Pirkei Avod in the Parak Aleph, up to 14, Yodalad. Hu Omer, he would say, Im ein ani li, if I am not for myself, me li, who will be for me? Ukeshe'ani le'atzmi ma'ani, and if I am for myself, what am I? Ve'im lo'achshav ematai, and if not now, when? Now, this is something that we have, probably most of us have heard throughout. We, we often attribute this as just a, a great line that is used for all sorts of different kinds of education, Holocaust education, um, certainly that other, other types of education as well, because it really kind of pushes the point. Before we go into it any further, uh, let's start off with Avi. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about kind of what does this mean? And, and maybe even you can give us an idea of what the context is that this came about when it was written then. So this was written by Hillel, the he who says it is Hillel, <clears throat> and it talks about the idea of advocating for oneself. And we have to remember that at this point in Jewish history, rabbis were people who studied, but that wasn't their job, right? They, they, for the most part, they were not hired as rabbis. They had other full-time jobs, and therefore there's the classic story of uh, Hillel who was a water carrier, not having enough money to uh, actually pay to get into the house of study, and therefore, um, in order to hear the class one evening on a, on a cold Jerusalem night, he climbed up to the skylight, put his ear against the skylight, and tried to listen from there. And the next morning, when they came in to say, uh, to, to Davin Shacharit, they said there's something blocking the skylight because there had been a light dusting of snow. And they went upstairs and found Hillel uh, frostbitten and asleep on, on top of the roof. And they brought him down and warmed him by the fire. Um, and, and from that point on, they, they said he no longer needed to pay to get in because um, clearly his dedication was of high enough caliber. But I think that one of the pieces that's important to remember here historically is that there is this push and pull between Sadducees and Pharisees, the Pharisees being the rabbis, the Sadducees being the, the mostly um, the, the, the class of the Kohanim, the priests who would run everything in the temple. And so when you're living in a time when the temple is there, 
well, what do you need study for, right? The temple is where all your ritual happens, all your interaction with God happens. And so I think Hillel is trying, in this case, as is much of Pirkei Avot, to help us understand important life lessons that are not in any way necessarily connected only to religious life, but to help us understand, because this was the philosophy of the Pharisees, that that your religious life should infuse your entire life as a whole. And so therefore, you know, for some people, this can really strike a difficult chord because Hillel, who's supposed to be this person who is so giving, right? There's another great Hillel story about a non-Jew who comes and uh, and first he comes to Shammai and he says to Shammai, teach me all of Torah on one foot. And Shammai, who is a builder, hits him with the one of his tools of the trade, like a yardstick, and shoes him away, thinking that the man is making fun of him. And then he comes to Hillel and he says, teach me all of Torah on one foot. And Hillel says, do not do unto others that which is hateful to you. And there's a lot more we could talk about that lesson and how it compares to the golden lesson that is sometimes quoted in American society, which may be for another podcast, uh, another episode. But I think that people sometimes look similarly at this Mishnah and say, really? Hillel was so giving, and here he's starting off with the idea of, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? That I should advocate for myself? And when I was younger, that was a bit of a surprise to my, for me as well. And then only after I've taken care of myself can I, can I do something else. And as I got older, right, uh, the parallel that, that became clear to me was the idea of putting on your oxygen mask on the plane, right? If there's an emergency on the plane, you put your own oxygen mask on first and then help the person next to you. So Akiva, I'm going to ask you to take that analogy and pull it forward in terms of why we do that and what's the psychological extrapolation thereof in terms of helping yourself and helping others. So, and, and this, I will say that this is also something that's very common amongst people that I work with. They, they will often say, well, I, I need to be selfish. I need to take care of me for a little bit. And we talk about the language of that because, again, it's not selfish. And it's important. And the reason why it's important is, and let's talk about that analogy of putting on the oxygen mask. If you cannot breathe, you cannot help anyone else with their oxygen mask. Right? That's the first and foremost thing. If you can't breathe, you can't do anything. You know, I took a, I took a hazmat training one time. And they, they had an unfortunate way of describing... Um, people who were first responders before the hazmat team got there. 
uh, oftentimes we know that the first responders who come into a situation are the police. And they refer to them as blue canaries. Now, if you think the canary down in the coal mine is the one that if there's carbon monoxide, right, the canary would die. Well, (laughs) if there's a hazmat situation where certain chemicals are out and poisonous, you run in without the proper protection and you're dead. And the fact is, is that's really what this is saying as far as the psychological medical side is if you cannot breathe, if you cannot even pick yourself up, then you can't possibly do anything for anyone else. And that's what that first piece really says for me, is not that it's selfish, but in fact that it is simply, if I can't take care of myself, if I'm in not a position to handle my own self-care, how could I possibly consider myself able to help anyone else? And we see that. We see those parents who run themselves ragged and, quite frankly, despite their best efforts, either fall flat, fall short, or just do a terrible job. And it's not because they don't want to do a good job. It's not because they want to fall short. It's not because they don't want to succeed. It's simply because they have not taken care of themselves in a way that have let them do for others. You need to do for your others. Caregiver burnout, which is where it kind of comes into this, because we also see this with children of uh, parents who are in need or any other caregivers where there's no self-care. We, ha- we know that healthcare there's a huge burnout rate amongst some professionals. And those professionals are generally the ones who have no ability to care for themselves, no ability to stop for a moment and say, what am I doing for me? And why is it so important that I do something for me? Because then I can do for everyone else and help everyone else and take care of their needs and be there for them and support them in the ways that they need because I'm not embittered on the inside. I'm not overwhelmed on the inside. I've taken care of my own needs so that I can truly give of myself. So it's this huge important thing. And the other piece, which is, of course, that second component of... But if I'm only for myself, then what am I? And again, that, that goes in perfectly, right? That ties in so well because we don't just do for ourselves. And, and Avi, I, I'll, I'll steal your thunder for a little bit because I'm reminded of these wonderful drashas that we hear about how it's important when we're davening, when we're praying to Hashem and we're asking for things, Right? It's always that question, why am I asking for something? Hashem wants to know, why are you asking for this? You know, why, why do you want more parnasa? Why do you need more money? Why do you need this? Why do you want that? Why do you need a bigger house? Is it because you need to impress your neighbors? Is it because you need to have the fanciest car? Or do you need more money so that you can give tzedakah? Do you need a bigger house so you can host guests and, and invite them into a life and allow for people who don't have to have access to more, right? To be able to, to incorporate and, and do more mitzvot. If that's what you're doing, if the goal is to do more mitzvot, then the idea is that that's okay to ask for. You know, we're not asking for more money so that we can just have more money. Maybe we're asking for money so we can support our local kosher grocery store that uh, 
also as people who need to support themselves and take care of things and so that we can eat kosher food and we can raise our children in such a way and provide for them the right schooling and the right education that works for them, be it either Judaic secular mix of, of any percentage that works for our child or if they need a an additional tutoring, an additional support system to be able to provide that for them. Maybe that's why we need more Parnassa. Maybe that's why we need more money. And I think that's the important thing is why am I asking for this? Because I want to do for something else, for someone else. And that's the point is it's not just doing for you. It's not just selfish self-care. It's self-care so that I can care for others. And then we have the third part. So Akiva, the third part is and if not now, when will it be? And I love this, and I think it's beloved because it's such a classic call to action. Here's your time, right? As Nike likes to say, just do it. And I, I, I want to dive into the reason why people don't do things. And from my perspective, as I, as I reflect on reasons I've chosen not to do things, it seems to me to be two different things, and maybe you'll psychoanalyze me and tell me, no, it's really one thing. Um, and one is because the person wants it to be perfect, right? And, and sometimes we say perfect is the enemy of good, right? I can't publish the website for my new business yet because it's not perfect yet. I can't open this business because all the kinks haven't been worked out yet. Right? I want it to be perfect. And the other reason seems to be fear of failure. That whether it's someone in our lives or someone in our universe has set up an expectation, or maybe it's just us having set up an expectation of ourselves of, well, I'm not good at that, or we don't do that in my family, or that's not the way I think. Um, And so, again, whether it's a business, whether it is how much can I learn, right? I'm not a Gemara guy, so I'm going to focus on other things, or you know, I never had a traditional day school education, so I can't learn the same way as so-and-so. I, I, I go back to the story of Rabbi Akiva, who started when he was 40 and became a Talmud Chacham. I, I go back to all of the stories we hear about people who, you know, started later in life, found the part of what they needed to do that they were good at, and found support for the rest. So I'm going to turn it back to you and encourage you to, to dive into, again, are those two separate issues? I'm, I'm a perfectionist and, I'm a, and or I have a fear of failure, or are those really sort of two, two hands on the same clock? So there's a third component with this, which is a fear of success. And I think all of those different pieces do mesh up nicely together. We have this, well, what if I fail? 
What if I fail? What if I fail? What if it's not good? What if it's not good enough? What if it's not perfect enough? What would that say about me? And my challenge is, and I say this to people often, um, if you don't try, then you know you failed. Because if you never give it an effort to have that opportunity to fail, right, and it goes back into, well, what do we learn from a failure? Is it really a failure? Well, no. No, most times a mistake, which is what a failure is, is an opportunity to learn from that mistake. And you have, I'm, I'm going to steal a concept from Meet the Robinsons, which is a great uh, movie. I think it's a Disney movie uh, or Pixar. One of those, or one of those guys who normally get all of it, you know, as we know, they get most of it wrong. But, and, and this is no different, by the way. But one of the things they did get right was you learn much more from failing than you do from succeeding. You do it right. You get it done. Okay, you know you did it. Great. What do you learn? To keep doing it the same way. But if you make a mistake, if you fail, then all of a sudden you have that opportunity. Oh, what can I do different? How will this work better? What will make this more successful, more achievable? So there's that fear of failure. Which again, I, I argue that if you don't try, then you don't have to fear failure because you have failed. You haven't even tried. And then... We have the fear of success. What if I do make it? What if I can't live up to those expectations? Which again is that same idea of that needing to be perfect, needing to never fail, right? If I if I if I succeed, then oh, I have so much to keep up. I'll have to. I can lose this. I can lose that. What'll happen next? And then I'll be on this pedestal. And what if I get knocked off the pedestal? Or how do I live up to what the pedestal brings? Fear of success is really also just the fear of failure. And these pieces are all intermingled, absolutely, with this need to be perfect, this idea that I can't make a mistake. Because if I make a mistake, then what will it say about me? What will it say? You're human. You're human, and you make mistakes, and you learn from them, and you grow from them, and you move on. Uh, the, the worst thing we can do, really, is teach others that mistakes are bad. Because mistakes are great. And yes, I'm not talking about certain major mistakes where... There need to be punishments associated with them. Some of what we're talking about. Uh, I don't want that to be extrapolated from this, but we are talking about the idea that if you screw up, if you make a mistake, okay, fix it, work on it, change it, modify it in a way to succeed. Um, you know, and, and I and I want to bring in this idea of also, which you know, I, I know is not something that we, we've talked about, is not something that is in the concept of classic Judaism, which is enjoyment. Right? We, don't, we, we talk about responsibilities, we talk about what you need to do, we don't very much and very often, at least in the beginning, talk about what's fun, what's enjoyable, the importance of... We talk about the enjoy, importance of simcha, but... Simcha is usually associated with stuff that needs to get done as well. And I'm reminded, and I often look back at this, uh, there's, a, there's an old song, very old song. I shouldn't say very old. Uh, for some of us, it's very old. It's, uh, I believe, originally, and I could be wrong, but the the songwriters that I see it's attributed to are Carl Sigmund and Herbert Magison, and it's called Enjoy Yourself. It's later than you think. 
And the whole premise of the song is talking about you put something off and you put something off and you put something off and you'll enjoy it later. But what happens later, you're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to have time to enjoy it. You work all the time. You never take a day off. You got to make all this money and you'll enjoy it later when you're retired. Well, unfortunately, and I know how often I see this, but how many people will wait and wait and wait? And by the time they actually have the ability to enjoy something, they don't have the physical ability to do it. Or they don't have the mental ability to do it. You're going to wait. First, I'm going to finish my education. Then I'll make the money. Then I'll get married. By the time that happens, what if you haven't found that person? What if you can't find that person? Or maybe I'll make money and I'll make sure that I can afford the children before I have them. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you can't rub two nickels together. It's time to have a family of six. But at the same time, anyone who has kids knows that it's never enough money. You always figure out, oh, well, apparently I can't afford this, this wonderful joy. And... And it's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing because we want to do amazing things for our kids and for our family, and we should. And at the same time, if you wait until you have enough money, who knows if you'll be able to have the children. Our plans don't work out the way that we want them to. And I think maybe that's part of this, too, is the if not now when, is your plans are not going to work according to your plan. They very rarely do. And so what needs to happen, what's important to happen is that if you start working on things, yeah, you might not succeed the first time. You might fail. You might need to rework things. You might need to figure it out. It might take two years. But better you should start two years earlier than wait until everything supposedly is in line and find out, oh, well, my plan still doesn't work. And then you have another two years, another three years to figure it out. So start things when you can. I think sitting and waiting is one of the unfortunate losses of the only thing that we cannot ever get more of, and that's time. The time you spend, the time you lose, you can't replace it. You can't get more time. So I think that uh, you've wrapped that up so beautifully, and I, I did a quick search while you were talking, and I saw that the, the, I knew there was a concept called Simcha Sachaim, Right, joy of life, that there should be just joy of life for the sake of joy of life, right? Doing fun things with your family, doing fun things with your spouse, doing fun things by yourself. Um, so I wanted to see if there were books, scholarly articles. Um, it seems that there seem that there are a lot more um, musical uh, uh, tapes, uh, or no, nobody listens to tapes anymore, but. But, but albums and <laughs> I think they still call them albums when they're put together as groups. But in any case, uh, there's a lot more music about Simcha Sachaim than there are books, uh, although there is a publishing, Simcha Sachaim Publishing House. Um, and I think that's an important, an important concept that sometimes, right, just going out and and throwing the ball or having a good talk or going for a walk on a beautiful day is not a waste of time. It's the mitzvah of Simcha Sachaim. And so with that, I want to take us to our around the, the, our question for around the Shabbos table. 
which is as follows. When's the last time and when's the next time you are going to take a Simcha Sachaim moment? It's okay to plan it. It doesn't have to be spontaneous. When's the last time you had one? It could have been spontaneous or planned. When's the next one you want to have one? With whom do you want to have it? can be spontaneous, maybe, but more likely planned if you're going to really think about it. And what do you want to do? What do you want to do for that Simcha Sachaim moment? Whether it's 10 minutes, whether it's a phone call with somebody special, whether it is a Shabbos spent together, whether it's a trip with your family. What do you want it to look like?